Good morning, church. My brothers and my sisters in Christ, it is a blessing for me to stand before you this morning and read the word. This morning, we begin our series on 1 Corinthians, going deep into the power of the gospel, where true transformation is found for all who believe. Today, we study the Corinthian context, Paul's Corinthian correspondence, and the Christian cure for the dysfunction of the Corinthian church and our church today. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Please join me in reading God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. The responsive reading, all flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. Amen. Thank you, Carl. Uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you for your patience with us as we uh, uh, adapt to two services. I know a few of you are like, hey, I came ready to worship God with my tithes and his offerings or his tithes and my offerings. I know. And the bag never got passed during the movie. It's okay. You can still worship God with his tithes and your offerings. The bags will be at the back. Uh, maybe this side we forgot. I don't know. And, and, and this is our second service uh, today. And I'm going to take my, I'm going to breathe deep. Because the first service, we were so anxious about time. I felt like I was on like two speed. You ever watch class in two speed? <laughs> and the gospel, Jesus loves you. All right, let's pray. Yeah. <laughs> Not today. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're starting a new series today. And I welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something as we start. Can you turn to the person on your side and just say to them, Jesus is alive and working. Can you do that? Now I want you to turn to the person on the other side and say, and he wants to work in you. There we go. There we go. Now everybody's covered. We're going to be, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it at 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, open it on your phone, um, or we can get you a Bible. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 15. We're, we're starting the series for what will become clear uh, in a new book towards the end of the book, chapter 15 of 16, uh, because Paul, what he does in this letter is he, he centers all of the arguments, all of his uh, diagnosis for the problems and the solution of the gospel, and he clearly defines it here in chapter 15, so we're going to unpack it. But before we do, I want to ask you a question. If you were to just tell me what's the most difficult thing to convert, what would you say? You don't have to answer out loud. Just think about it. Some of you might have thought converting someone to a different political party. Other you, other y'all might have been like me and you, you thought about the metric system, right? I don't like measuring things to begin with, but when you throw in, like, leave it to the French to invent the metric system, you know? Like, so I grew up with inches and feet and yards and something we call miles, right? Uh, the metric system, it has like, I don't know, uh, the doctors in this room can help me, uh, but it's like a thousand grams equal what? Kilograms. 
a kilogram, a thousand meters, a kilometer, all right? I know it doesn't sound confusing, but it's totally confusing. <laughs> Especially if you try to help someone bake. I'm not a baker. No one's accused me of being a baker, but I like to help people in my life who bake. And when they try to ask me to convert some measurements from like normal to metric, I just wait till they're not looking and throw whatever I can in and hope it works out. It got really confusing. We used to live in Indonesia uh, and my son Ben, we lived there for just over three years. And uh, my son Ben, when we moved over there, uh, his best friend's name was Miles. And we're driving down the road one day in Indonesia. They have the metric system. And we're just driving and my son randomly says in the back, Dad, if Miles had been born in Indonesia, would his parents have named him Kilometers? I don't know. It's a good question. Gotta ask them. But that's just, that's how much the metric system just messes things up, right? I mean, no one's watching football and they're like, oh man, I'm nervous. It's third and two meters. No, it's third and six yards, okay? That's how we talk about stuff. But I don't think that that's the most difficult thing to convert. You know what the most difficult thing to convert is? The human heart. I have the privilege to walk with people in life. And one of the greatest needs that I see in the lives of people who claim to know Christ personally and who probably do is a lack of gospel transformation in their heart. That we can be saved eternally, but not shaped in the moment by the work in the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't mean just shaping your Sunday morning schedule. I mean the deepest places of your belief system. Getting to the roots of why you continue to do that which you want to stop doing. You there? Why do I keep getting angry? Why can I not say no? Why do I care so much about what these people think of me? Why am I exhausting myself seeking to be productive? Why can't I stop doing this. Why can I not continue to do what I feel like I'm called to do? Why can't I stick with something? Why? The answer for Christians is because we haven't had a deep, substanceful transformation of the heart with the gospel, whereby we are renewed in our whole being, taking every thought Captive, being transformed by the renewing of our minds so much so that the deepest roots of our belief system reorder, rewire according to the work of Jesus and the redemption that he gives us so that we can inhabit fully in all of life the new creation which he has set us free to begin. That's what deep conversion looks like. We need a deep work of the Holy Spirit. Not just more participation, not just busier religion, not just more inspiration. I got to listen to more. I got to study more and just feel good. Listen to more words to me. I'm not talking about that's all good stuff. I'm talking true conversion, transformation that comes from authentic awe of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. When we get to that place by faith, we discover what Paul means in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for all who believe. So when we look at the Corinthian 
correspondence. The first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, we're going to see how he addresses issues again and again and again with the same solution, nuanced in different ways, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to unpack that a little bit today. But first, let's look at the, the, uh, the city of Corinth. It's a place a lot like our place. When we study Corinth, just a, Corinthians, just a heads up, you're going to feel like Paul is reading your emails. Um, it is a place that was very prosperous, uh, but it was also power hungry, very uh, promiscuous, and prizing productivity above all else. It was a city that was uh, significant historically for the Greeks uh, in their trade routes uh, along um, the sea there. I'm not even gonna pretend to say the name of the sea because I can't remember. I'll just fake it until I make it until somebody hears it and comes emails me later and like, you said that all wrong. Okay, all right. There was an important sea trade route that went right there, okay? Um, and it was destroyed uh, eventually rebuilt by Augustus Caesar in 1 AD, uh, and it reclaimed its prominence in society. It was quickly restored to the cosmopolitan um, crown jewel of that region. It was a significant place, not just for uh, commercial prosperity for anybody doing business in the region. It was also significant for intellectual thought, uh, and it was significant for people that wanted to hobnob and expand their networks with certain elites. Um, it was known as a place of licentiousness. Uh, you can see this picture here. This is ancient uh, Corinth. Uh, it, it, this, this is what it looks like today. Um, in the background, you see that mountain. On top of that mountain, there was literally one of the largest temples to a goddess named Aphrodite's. Uh, you worshiped Aphrodite's uh, back in the day by using a prostitute. We'll just put it that way. And there were hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of prostitutes on that mountain in the temple. So when anything significant happened, if there was going to be a, a massive business deal or a big hobnobbing celebration, then the city would fill up with uh, people that helped you worship Aphrodite's. Why? So that you could be fertile and productive in that which you were setting yourself to. In the foreground, you see those columns. Those are actually uh, uh, ruins that are left over from a temple uh, of Apollos, who was a Greek god. And what this picture captures uh, is this utter licentious culture that was saturated with promiscuity and centered on pagan worship and idolatry. Like I said, just like our country. Just kidding. Uh, but here's, well, kind of, but not really. To Corinthianize was a popular saying, uh, and it was slang for to go to the devil. Um, it was populated uh, with really smart people. Let me just summarize it this way. It was intellectually advanced, materialistic, prosperous. Yeah, we got that. But totally morally corrupt. Uh, people in Corinth, you can read uh, historian, sociologist after sociologist, all say this. They prioritized the autonomy of the self so much so that they rejected all other authority and sought to develop the individual person at complete expense of everything and everyone else. That is where we can identify. And this is the context with which Paul went um, on his second missionary journey. But it was so problematic. How do, we get, how do we get our minds around this? I'm going to tell you a story. I don't know if you've ever been uh, somewhere where the authenticity inspired you, but also intimidated you. I went to a church one time, and we pray that the gospel frees us as people to be this authentic and inspirational. 
but I went to this worship service and this guy got up to give a testimony and here's how he started it. He said, I'm a Corinthian in search of Corinthians. And then he started talking about his life. Intellectually, superior. Business-wise, prosperous. But he had done a lot to cope. Socially, to be accepted. What started just to, to lubricate uh, social skills so he could hobnob and network with alcohol, turned into an addiction. That addiction began to dominate his life, living for other people's approval, giving himself to relationships outside of his marriage. He stood up there talking about his brokenness in a way that it, you felt vulnerable listening. And then he talked about how the power of the gospel, even though he had grown up in church, when he really understood the implications of the work of Jesus, not just on a head level, but a heart level, what Jesus really began to rewire in his life, he painted a picture of redemption and restoration in the life of an individual person that any of us would be inspired by. And here's how he ended. He said, I'm a Corinthian, I'm a Corinthian in search of Corinthians. Broken people who look too much like their culture, cracked up, burdened, broken, longing to be free for the life God created for us to be. Only through the power of the gospel is that opportunity realized. So Corinthian context is a place like ours and the Corinthian correspondence when Paul writes, he, he writes addressing pastorally, we're gonna see 10 specific scenarios that he does. Now, Paul went, as I said, on his second missionary journey. And he went there, he spent a year and a half there. I was actually able to go to Corinth this summer. Uh, I thought I'd get some sort of, ooh, but nothing. Okay, it's all right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we were on a, uh, a trip as a family and the focus was my daughter graduated with an architecture or design degree and we wanted to inspire her with certain stuff. And they were like, dad, we, want, we made it so you can have a day where you can just nerd out and go to Corinth. And, uh, and so I was like, awesome, right? So I'm like reading and studying all this stuff before we go, trying to sound smart. Um, I read Acts 18, one to 17, which is the, the summary, I mean, super basic of Paul's year and a half in Corinth. He stayed with Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers. That's why he stayed there. He stayed, they lived next to the synagogue where he was like every day until he got in trouble. And then they, he moved like all the way across the street. Like he was looking for trouble with the gospel, ended up getting uh, tried by the tribunal, kicked out. I studied all this stuff in Acts 18 and our van driver, who was just driving us that day to Corinth. He was telling us all about it. And he was like, and you know, the, uh, the apostle Paul, have you heard of him? I was like, I heard of him. Yeah, I heard of him. I was like loaded for bear to impress my kids, right? And he was like, yes, he was here for six months on one of his teaching tours. And I was like, come on, man. He was here for a year and a half. And the guy says, oh. I said, where did you learn just six months? He's like, well, the person that trained me taught me he was here for just six months. I was like, well, that person needs to look at the original source. And I started talking, pontificating about Acts 18 and my kids were heavy hand in the back. I was like, it, it's that easy. We know on Paul's second missionary journey, he went there, he spent time there because Corinth was a significant place. 
And then if the gospel can take root in a place of influence, then it can go forward through ordinary trade routes like boats and travelers. It can, it can go forward through the economic success of, of tradesmen and, and farmers and the, the intellectual prowess where people would come and argue philosophically. If the gospel can take root there, then it can go everywhere. And that's why Paul spent time in Corinth. And it's why the church has got to understand in our country today what the true power of the gospel is and we don't get it. I don't know if you saw David Brooks' article in The Atlantic a couple weeks ago. Phenomenal. How did America get so mean and divided? We've lost our, our whole moral fabric that was set as a standard by the church historically. And there is no more moral formation because frankly, Christians have adopted more of a booster rocket mentality to our faith than we have a true gospel transformation. What do you mean booster rocket mentality, Mitchell? Let me tell you, glad you asked. Here's what I mean. You remember the old space shuttles that would take off and a rocket was on the side? What happens when the space shuttle gets in the atmosphere? Booster rocket falls off. This is how we've treated our faith. If I can just uh, get the right group of friends, I need you, Jesus, and I do. Once you're in that atmosphere of friendships, the rocket goes. Well, if I can just go to the right school, if I can just get the right degree, if I can get in the right relationship, you know, graduate, if I can just get in the right job, the booster rocket, I need my Jesus, I need my, I need my faith. And then you get in that atmosphere, you're just, you lose the rocket. Who needs the faith anymore? As if, as if, as if the gospel is something that just is an add-on so that you can have your best life now. Then, after we graduate and we get the job or we're looking for the right job, oh, I need my faith so I can get the right job. I need my faith so I can get in the right relationship. I need my, my faith so I can get in the right organizations, the right social networks, the right business. I need my faith so that I can be prosperous. We use Jesus for ourselves. We misunderstand the gospel and we miss the true transformation that Jesus wants to give us. And so it's significant as a church in America, but here, that we get the gospel. And we look at our country and we say, well, how did everybody get so mean and divided? Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if you follow, um, so, um, um, my, my mind is blank. What is his name? Uh, I love this guy. I listen to his podcast and read his stuff. His name is Russell Moore. Um, but his new book uh, on the crisis of evangelicalism. Externally, our country is, is mad. And fractured. It turns out internally, same thing. We have a problem because we don't understand the gospel in a heart transforming way. And so when Paul addresses disunity in the church, when he addresses sexual promiscuity outside of marriage and incest in family, when he addresses difficult issues of identity, when he addresses issues of, of uh, uh, honoring weaker members of our, uh, of our community, when he addresses unity in the body, when he addresses the, the abuse of our self-righteousness and our spiritual gifts at the expense of building up the body, when he addresses the basic beliefs of the gospel that are misunderstood or not believed by the church in general, he goes back again and again and again to the gospel not saying to the Corinthian church, well, I hope that you understand the gospel so you're saved. Yes, we hope that. But saying to the Corinthian church, I hope you understand the gospel so that you're shaped 
like Jesus, so that you're transformed more by the gospel than your political beliefs. You're transformed more by the gospel than your social status. You're transformed more by the gospel than where you graduated from. That you are transformed more by the gospel than anything in our culture because God's desire is to use you to transform our culture so that his kingdom will come and his will will be done in San Antonio as it is in heaven. Do you understand the paradigm? So Paul begins this epistle, this letter to the Corinthian church by saying, I came to you knowing nothing. I came in weakness and in trembling and I just proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. The centrality of the gospel that is woven in till we get to the context where we are today in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the historicity and what we're gonna discuss and study in our passage today about the gospel. This book is not only bookended with the power of the gospel, but the gospel is woven through and you're gonna see it so much so that it's going to inspire you and give you all. Let me ask you this. Do you have all of the gospel? Do you just have a majestic humbling by who Jesus is and what he's done from your life? Or is it more like a booster rocket? This picture right here uh, takes me to this study. We're gonna refer to it more next week, but the Franklin Templeton Foundation, they actually study the science of all. (laughs) Talk about a niche study, right? Yeah, I mean, okay, I was reading this. I was like, all right. Uh, But they just released a new study. Uh, We did a study they released in the 2020. They reframed it. It's really good. Um, It's called the impact of all. Here's how they define all. It's a self-transcendent experience that shifts our attention away from ourselves to make us feel like we are a part of something greater than ourselves, changing our perception of time and even making us more generous to others. And they're going to focus on things like this awe-inspiring uh, view here. And they're going, to, they're going to unpack things like how uh, a sense of awe when we see something majestic or we experience something majestic like a, like a symphony or we read an amazing novel or we hear this phenomenal, I watch an amazing movie. We have this sense of awe where we're caught up and we realize, man, life's not all about me. And we experience this humility and actually the study shows that there's actually an increased connectivity because we don't spend our whole life defining ourselves and finding hope by curating an image of ourselves, but we actually come out of ourselves, just the science of all secularly, common grace, that when we behold something majestic, that we're transformed individually and socially. And what Paul does is he builds on this common grace understanding and he challenges you in the church. Do you really have in awe of the gospel? Do you see Jesus in his work as more awesome than anything else? Do you pay more attention to it? Are you more caught up in it? Are you more transformed by what Christ has done than you are headlines of our world, political agendas of our culture, court decisions, family dysfunction, Fractured friendships, your own bank account, your own neighborhood, your own job status. Are you captured more by what Christ has done than anything else in all the world? This is an invitation for you to experience the fullness of new creation that comes in Jesus Christ. That's why we're studying 1 Corinthians. And I'm just going to warn you, forewarning, all right? 
when we get to the stuff on holiness and sexuality, it's going to challenge us. And we're going to see something of an import from the resurrection of Jesus that matters substancefully for the holiness of your life because our body matters. How God made us matters. And how we treat the temple that God's given us matters. We're going to see it. I'm just warning you, it's going to be fun. But we've got five minutes to dig in this text. I got it. I got it. Where are my intercessors? <laughs> I'm praying. What's, what does the gospel say? What is, the, what is the gospel according to Paul? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. The first thing we see is that he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that is shared something you hear, and something you believe by faith. You know, um, the reality of the resurrection is a culmination of God's ancient plan, whereby he decided to remedy the distance between him and his people to restore his presence in real relationship through the perfect life of Jesus Christ, where he was innocent, representing us in his life, and then he died in our place. He, he became sin so that we could become a newness of life. We could receive his righteous record. And when he rose from the grave, he represents us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something we hear and we not just believe here, but we receive by faith in all of our life. Secondly, the gospel is about Jesus and his work. For I delivered, verse three, to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Contrary to the majority opinion of Christians, probably you, definitely me, but the gospel's not about you. The Christian faith isn't about you. It's about Jesus. The gospel is about what God has done to show his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still missing the mark, while we were God's enemy, while we were children of wrath, all of those are scriptural reference, Christ died for us. The work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ is what the gospel is all about. Thirdly, the gospel is about Jesus, uh, excuse me, I just said that. The gospel is thoroughly biblical. Look twice in verse three and four. We just read it. Uh, he died according to the scriptures and he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Repeated twice for emphasis. And sometimes in our faith, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? <laughs> and we not only think it's about ourself so that we feel better, but we also think, well, this is like a plan B that God did, Right? I mean, we tried, humans tried to, to do better, to do gooder so we could get back in God's presence. And then, then God sent Jesus, right? Wrong. According to the, the scriptures, God's ancient plan, his definite foreknowledge that Ephesians 1 said he had scripted since before the foundation of the world to redeem his people from the slavery and the penalty of sin to restore us 
to right relationship with him according to the scriptures. And I'll spare you all the places in the, in the law, the Pentateuch and, and the Psalms and the prophets where this is actually dictated. And I'll just point you back to a familiar place in Luke 24. Luke 24, when Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus with discouraged disciples, they were despondent and they're like, hey man, are you the only person that doesn't know what happened here? He's the only person that actually did know what happened because it was Jesus. They didn't recognize him. And it says in Luke 24, 44, that he opened their hearts to hear how all the scriptures, all the law and the prophets spoke about how the Messiah needed to die and rise again. According to the scriptures, fourth, the gospel's historical. It actually happened. Verse five, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he goes on to say, verse six, uh, he appeared to more than 500 brothers. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about James and appearing to himself as a resurrected Jesus. Jesus bodily resurrected and he historically appeared to people. Of those hundreds that are mentioned here, most of them were still alive when Paul was writing this and they would have been quick to dispel it if it was a lie. It was not. In fact, one of the most solid arguments on the actual uh, factuality, the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the birth of the church specifically. You can't explain the birth of a church, of our church, of the Christian church without this historical reality. If you want to know more on that, I recommend N.T. Wright's book, uh, Jesus and the Victory of God, and I'll get you a copy if you read it, 623 pages, so hold on. Uh, but it's really solid. And then third, finally, the gospel's personal. Go back to verse one. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, that which you received, in which you stand. The gospel is intended to be personal and transform you. It is not intended to be a booster rocket that you attach to your life, and when you get into the atmosphere that you long for, you just knock it off. The gospel's intended to move from your head to your heart and affect all that you do with your hands, all that you say with your lips, all that you do in your labor. Everything that happens in our life is a sacrificial response offering, truly that the view of God's mercy we are transformed and that Christ is everything. So that when you're asked the question, what is your greatest security? The answer isn't in how much money you have in your account or what the geopolitical dynamics are in a certain moment. But the answer is the finished work of Jesus Christ. What's your greatest significance? Is it in your productivity, your performance? how much you do or how much you're worth or what you're a part of. Your greatest significance is Jesus Christ. What's your status? Is it your zip code? Is it your alma mater? It's Christ. What's your story? The story of your life. It's centered on Christ. What is your true success? How do you define success? Christ. Joining Paul and saying that I have learned to rejoice in my sufferings, joining Jesus in saying it's better to give than receive, understanding the dynamics of the kingdom that if you want to learn how to live, then first you've got to learn how to die. We consider other people more significant than ourselves. We have the mind of Christ. 
That's our success. The cross of Jesus, him crucified. What, what is your strength? How do you make it through the anxiety? How do you make it through the depression? How do you make it through the loneliness? How do you make it through the fears and the confusion? Your strength is Jesus Christ. And join Paul in saying, what is the solution? The solution to the dysfunction of my heart, the solution, the dysfunction of our church, the solution to the dysfunction of our culture and our world. What is the solution? It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. His perfect life, his death in your place, his resurrection of the grave, his ascension into heaven, and the Holy Spirit that he gives his people so that we can walk in a newness of life. Do you hear it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe, but would you help us with our unbelief? It's so easy to acknowledge it with our lips and to forget it truly with our life. Lord, we ask that as we study this series, truly, Lord, would you ambush us? We want to be inspired to transformation. The deepest parts of our belief system, the core of our identity, everything who we are would be transformed by the power of the gospel. We pray that marriages will be restored. We pray that, that, that families would be reconciled. We pray that enemies would be reunited in love. We pray that people who are addicted will be free. We pray, Lord, for areas of our community and our city to be resurrected and revived because the people of God chose to believe the power of the gospel. We pray for people that are in bondage with addiction, Lord Jesus to be free by the power of the gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would do what only you could do and that your glory would come through a people who choose to believe you. Lord, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. Please, King Jesus, have mercy, we pray. In your name, all God's people said, amen.